Love yourself. Fulfill your potential. Don't let anyone look down on you. Look within and be the person that you want to be. Stop thinking negative thoughts about yourself. Start praising yourself, rewarding yourself, indulging yourself. If you work hard and you don't give up, you'll be able to fulfill your dreams, fulfill your potential. You'll be happy. Well, that's a kind of uh, advice that is put forward by many life coaches or managers at work, teachers, parents, and some pastors too, maybe Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer, to name a few. And it's a, it's a, a fundamentally positive view of human nature and, and what human beings can achieve. It's a view that is, is shared not only by, by popular culture and perhaps, you know, the discovery of the black hole uh, this week just enforces this idea we can do anything we want. But it's not just out there in a the popular world. It's there in the psychology schools too. I remember when I was at uh, university and uh, I took a couple of uh, subjects in psychology out of interest and I was struck by just how positive so many psychological theories are about human nature. Uh, and it's not just uh, Maslow's theory of uh, self-actualization. You've probably heard of that. Actually, modern psychology has long since moved on from that. But nevertheless, even today, many modern psychological therapies still at their heart have the idea of increasing our self-esteem and feeling better about ourselves, cutting out the negative thoughts and telling yourself that you can do anything. In other words, the world's solution to the human problem is pride. Look within. Pride, which led to the fall in Genesis 3. Pride, which led to the Tower of Babel being built in Genesis 11. Pride that is deep in the heart of every human being. We exalt ourselves. We look inside to save ourselves, to improve ourselves. And this morning we come again to consider this marvellous passage, the death of Christ, the murder of the author of life, the central event of all of human history. And it's an event that if we've really understood it, will humble our pride and make us look outside fuel our praise, and bring real change to our lives. Well, you know, if we've uh, been with us, Luke's been uh, recording this eyewitness account of uh, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. These are not just made-up stories. He was a, a doctor. He investigated the facts, and he wrote it down in an orderly account. And we've traced through his final days, his arrest, his betrayal, his condemnation on false charges, and now his crucifixion. We saw last week he, uh, Jesus hangs between two criminals, one on his right, one on his left. The one mocks him with the crowds. The other trusts him and enters paradise. And now we enter the very final hours of Jesus' life. And uh, as Jesus dies, Luke records for us four key events 
to help us understand Jesus' death. It's very interesting, though. Luke doesn't dwell on the, uh, you know, uh, the torment and the physical suffering and the, the unbearable emotional uh, you know, pain that Jesus must have been going through. He, he, he barely even mentions it. He just says they crucified him. But what he points us to here is these four things, the darkness, the curtain, the cry, and the conclusion of of the centurion. So let's look at these in turn. The first clue, the darkness, and it's there in verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Hour. Now, the, the Jews started counting the hours from sunrise, so the sixth hour is noon. It is the middle of the day. This is no ordinary darkness. This is a, a supernatural darkness. This is a, a, a gloomy and threatening darkness. It lasts for three whole hours. And, of course, we should ask the question, why is it that God turns out the lights as his son Jesus Christ hangs there on the cross. Well, darkness has many related meanings in Scripture. The the Psalms often speak of God dwelling in thick darkness. It's a picture of his his holiness, uh, his unapproachableness. God descends to Mount Sinai in in fire and cloud and, and thick darkness. It's terrifying. Other times, darkness is associated With death, we descend to the darkness of death. But darkness in the middle of the day, well, that is associated with God's holy judgment on sin. Do you remember the Exodus when God rescues his people out of Egypt? The ninth plague, that deadly plague, was darkness in the middle of the day, a a deep darkness that could be felt by the people. And and as we get to the prophets later on in the Old Testament, this kind of midday darkness is used to describe the day when God will come to judge the world. We saw it in that Old Testament reading from Amos chapter 8. It's a terrifying chapter. God says to his people, The end has come. Your dead bodies will be everywhere. They will lie in silence because God will punish them. And we read later on in the chapter, on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Now the prophet Joel likewise spoke of God's great day of judgment in the same way. Joel says, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army. His camp is exceedingly great. He executes his word. Uh, his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And the prophet Zephaniah prophesies a day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. And so the day of the Lord is the final judgment day. It's a day of wrath and anger, symbolized by darkness. 
And so at that moment, as Jesus hangs there on the cross, what is happening is that Jesus is bearing upon himself God's holy judgment against the sins of the whole world. And there on that cross, as God's final judgment is poured out on Jesus, taken taken forward from the end of time and now poured out in history on Jesus at this one terrifying point, Jesus is forsaken. It's as if uh, when when you're a child, you get one of those magnifying glasses and you you kind of zoom it down, zoom down the light to fry an ant or something like that. And here on the cross is all the righteous anger of God, focused in one person, one point, at the center of history. Matthew and Mark, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That cry is not recorded here. But the darkness communicates exactly the same thing. God is hiding his face from his beloved son who bears God's wrath in our place. And so if we are to understand the cross, then we must grasp this this reality of the judgment of God. We're reminded in this, this terrifying darkness that God is holy that in his perfect goodness, he cannot tolerate any sin. He's rightly angered by our failure to love him, our failure to love one another. Our sin matters that much to God that his love compels him to judge. And before a, a, a holy and righteous judge like this, not one of us could hope to stand His judgment is terrifying. We deserve this darkness of death. We deserve to be cast from his presence into the outer darkness, as Jesus regularly describes, hell, where there's no light, no love, no hope, only torment and torture. And so unless we recognize our hearts and the darkness of God's holy judgment, we'll never appreciate the cross. Because there on that cross, Jesus is bearing that judgment for us in our place, forsaken that we might be forgiven. That brings us to the second picture and that freedom and forgiveness that that Jesus wins for us in his death is symbolized by that torn curtain. We read in verse 45, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now we read the other gospels, it was from top to bottom. And the temple in the Old Testament was the symbol of God's presence and rule among his people. Uh, It was a symbol of his presence, but it was also a very powerful reminder that sinful people could not approach the holy God. God was was so holy and so perfect. Yes, he was there in the tent, but, but no one was able to 
really enter in, not into that most holy place where, where God symbolically dwelled. It was, it was just like at the Garden of Eden where the, the, the angels barred the way so humanity could not come back into God's presence. So in the temple there was this great curtain from the roof to the floor that barred the way to the Holy of Holies where God symbolically dwelt. Only the high priest could go inside once a year and never without a sacrifice. And yet as Jesus dies on that cross, suddenly that curtain is ripped in two as if it's by the hand of God himself from top to bottom. And that gives us wonderful hope. That torn curtain tells us that the way to God is now open, that the doors of heaven have been opened wide. No longer need sinners like us be barred from his presence because the sin is paid in full. The judgment is exhausted on Jesus. And so we have the first picture, Jesus is forsaken. And the second picture, we are welcomed in. Jesus dies so that we are accepted. Jesus dies so that we are forgiven. Jesus dies so that we live. It's wonderful. And this torn curtain tells us that that, that no longer do we need uh, any earthly building, whether it's a, a temple or a church or whatever it is, to draw near into the presence of God. That, that whole system uh, is fulfilled by Jesus as he offers that perfect sacrifice. And it's abolished by Jesus, just as Jesus said, the temple would be destroyed a few chapters earlier. And so now we can draw near to the throne of God's grace with confidence. We, we, can, we can pray to God as our heavenly Father. We can know that he will not only welcome us now, but he will welcome us at the end on that judgment day. Our relationship is restored. And we have free access to him. Well, the third picture we have is Jesus Christ. And it is there in verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now the first thing to notice is that Jesus' cry is loud. Now normally when people died of crucifixion, apparently they would be in such torment and such exhaustion they could hardly breathe, let alone speak. And what Luke wants us to understand, therefore, is that, that Jesus' death is no tragedy or accident. Here we have Jesus voluntarily choosing to give up his life. He cries out in a loud voice, and it's emphasized by, by the contents of this final cry. He cries, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now Jesus dies with this great cry of faith. It's a quotation from Psalm 31. Psalm 31. It's a psalm about a righteous suffering king who entrusts his fate into God's loving hands. The psalmist prays, into your hands 
I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord. Faithful God. And so with this final cry, Jesus shows himself to be the, to, to be the ultimate righteous sufferer, faithful to the very end, even as he endures the, the darkness of God's wrath overwhelming him. He continues to trust his Father. I was thinking on this, how, how different this is to how we, often, how we often respond to the suffering in our lives. When the dark days come, we would usually ask, why, Lord? We get bitter with God. We get angry with God. We turn our faith, face from God. We cease to pray. We cease to read our Bible. We cease to meet with God's people. But not Jesus. In the face of this unimaginable, physical, emotional, and most of all, spiritual torment... He hangs naked, mocked, rejected, betrayed, beaten, bruised, and tortured on the cross. Even though he knows he's innocent, and he still trusts his Father. It's amazing, isn't it? And so Jesus cries out in faith, and then he dies. The author of life dead. What should we conclude? Well, the fourth picture we get to understand the cross is the conclusion of the Roman centurion who was overseeing his death. He's a centurion. He's in command of 100 soldiers. And verse 47 we read... When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. It's a, it's a climactic pronouncement in the gospel. And it's amazing. It's not made by the disciples. They're nowhere to be seen. It's not made by the Jewish leaders. It's, it's made by this, this Gentile soldier. It's an anticipation of the, the great Gentile mission that's to come as, as Gentile after Gentile will praise God as they receive the gospel of grace. What is his conclusion? He praises God. What a horrific sight he must have seen. Praise. Certainly this man was innocent. As I pointed out the last time I preached, Luke really underlines this. This is like bold, highlight, circled. This is the seventh time in the Passion narrative that someone declares Jesus' innocence. Jesus is righteous. He is not guilty of any of the crimes of which he has been accused. And again, you notice the difference with Matthew and Mark. In Matthew and Mark, the centurion cries out, surely this man was the son of God. I've often wondered, why did Luke write it differently? But actually, they're, they're not contradictory. By declaring Jesus innocent, 
The centurion is indeed affirming Jesus' claims are true. Jesus is not blaspheming. He really is the Son of God. It's true. But I think Luke underlines this to make another point as well. By declaring Jesus righteous, innocent, without charge, without guilt, Luke is wanting to take our minds back again to the Old Testament scriptures, to Isaiah 53 again, to the righteous suffering servant. Look at Isaiah 53, 11. Out of the anguish... Oh, that's not the right verse. Sorry about that. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And so the suffering servant is called the righteous one who makes others righteous. And it's not just Isaiah, it's, uh, it's in Jeremiah 23, it's in Zechariah 9, the, 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 the king riding on the donkey. They all declare this prophecy is about a righteous king who is coming, who is bringing salvation for his people. And so Luke is, is underlining this. As Jesus dies, he is the righteous, innocent king who, who is there on the cross to save Sinners. Surely this man was innocent means he is the king and the saviour of the world. And that then is the meaning of the cross. On the cross, Jesus takes the judgment we deserve. Through the cross, Jesus opens wide the gates of heaven that we might be accepted by God. Jesus does this by willingly laying down his life, even though he was innocent. And he does it for guilty sinners like you and me. But the real question in the passage is how will we respond to the cross? It is an event that demands a response from every person. And in the following verses, Luke tries to paint for us a picture of what the right and proper response is. We've already seen it partly in the centurion. What is his first response? Praise. That's what he does. He recognizes the innocence of Jesus. He therefore declares the kingship of Jesus. He's just like the criminal who hung at Jesus' side and said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There is praise on his lips. And that is the right response to the cross. As we recognize Jesus hanging there in our place, how else could we respond? God could have abandoned us to the eternal torment of the outer darkness of hell. That's what we deserve. But his innocent son hung there for us. He refused to save himself so that he might save us. And if that does not move us to praise, if that does not open our eyes to the majesty and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's something terribly wrong. 
as we gaze at the cross, our hearts ought to be filled with this never-ceasing praise to the King of kings and Lord of lords who hung there for you. But notice that's uh, not the only response Luke records here. Secondly, we have the crowds. Verse 48. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had happened, what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And notice how Luke describes the scene here. It's a spectacle. It's as if, it's as if all of Jerusalem is there gazing on. And they look on and, uh, and just imagine you're there. They see the crown of thorns. They see the sign above his head. They hear the mocking voices. They feel this terrifying darkness. They hear Jesus' final cry as he yells out in a loud voice. They hear the centurion's conclusion. And they go home, beating their breasts mourning, despairing. It's as if Luke is transporting us there to the very scene, forcing us to look on at this innocent man, tortured and killed, though he'd done nothing wrong. And Luke intends that we will be cut to the heart, that we will mourn over our sin, humanity's sin that would put him there. This comes out again and again in, in the preaching in Acts. This is what Peter preaches. He says to the crowds a few days later, a few days late, a few weeks later, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. What a travesty. See, in that darkness we see as Jesus dies on the cross, we are to see the darkness of our own hearts. Here is the God who's given us everything that we have, created this beautiful world, given us our family and our friends. And if that was not enough, he gives his one and only son he reveals God in all his majesty and glory. He shows such love and compassion and humility and gentleness. And yet again and again, our response is to doubt God, to distrust God, and sometimes in our sin to despise God, to dethrone God, to deny him his rule so that in our pride we may rule our lives instead. As we grasp the depths of our sin, we ought to mourn. We ought to be cut to the heart. We ought to stop pretending in our pride that we are good enough for God or that we ever could be. And perhaps it, it helps us to realize that there's just one other place in Luke's gospel where someone beats their breast just like this. Do you know where it is? Verse 49. 
It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And there is the Pharisee boasting about his moral goodness. And then there's the tax collector standing far off, not even lifting his eyes to heaven, beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And as we gaze at the cross, that is the right response to mourn at our sin and to cry out to God for mercy. We see this again in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. Peter preaches that all the house of Israel know for certain God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And they've recognized they're responsible. As we're told they are cut to the heart. They despair at their sin. They, they cry out, what should we do? And that is what leads to their conversion, their salvation. Praise, mourning. And then there's one more intriguing little group here what is left of the disciples. They're there in verse 49. And all his acquaintances and the women who'd followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. It's as if they're perplexed and they're shocked and they stand far off in the distance not really knowing what what they should do. They're neither praising him nor are they killing him. Perhaps they're considering what do they make of the cross. Perhaps there are some of here like that this morning, looking on from a distance, wondering what to make of it all. And those first two responses show you what you should do. Recognize his kingship. Recognize your sin. And call on him for mercy. Responding to the cross. Well, thirdly, we have one final point with the burial of Jesus in verses 50 to 56. And I think often as, I, as we read these verses, we look at them as, I don't know, something as an epilogue, you know, the filler between his death and his resurrection. Uh, evidence that he was really dead so that uh, we could be sure that he was really raised from the dead. And, and of course, it, it is that. We're told in verse 53... Joseph took down the body. He was really dead. Verse 53, again, he was laying in a tomb where no one has ever been laid. So there could be no confusion when Jesus rose. The the tomb was really empty. It was really him. And verse 54, the women saw the tomb. They saw Jesus laid inside. They didn't go to the wrong place. He was really risen. But I must confess, uh, you know, thinking as I started preparation, I wasn't sure what else to say on these verses. And until I listened to a sermon by Dick Lucas, who was a former preacher at St. Helens, he asked the question, very helpful, what is the unique thing that we see here? And again, what we see here is two groups of people who are willing to serve this crucified king, Joseph of Arimathea 
and these women. First, there's Joseph. Look how he's described in verse 50. There was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. That's quite a CV, isn't it? Now, Luke has made it abundantly clear in what has come earlier that it's the Jewish leaders who had Jesus put to death. And so in case we're tempted, as some have in the past, to to anti-Semiticism, to hatred of the Jews, I read one story this week of a grab car driver who would refuse to pick up Jews uh, if they booked him his car. Well, Luke shows us Joseph And he's described just like Zachariah and Elizabeth in chapter 1. He's just like Simeon and Anna in chapter 2. He is righteous. He is devout. He is waiting for the kingdom. He is a faithful Jew, a model, an example. And Joseph is held up for us, for our admiration. And what Joseph does here is embrace the shame of the cross, in one final act of loving service. He faces up to Pilate. What courage that must have taken. He takes down the twisted, bruised body. He touches the corpse, defiling himself. He buries the body in his own tomb. All whilst everyone looks on, they know who he is. He's a council member. Just imagine the response of Pilate. You want to do what? Bury that criminal in your own tomb? Just imagine him fronting up to the next council meeting. You did what? How dare you show honour to that blaspheming traitor? Imagine the response of his wife. You did what? You buried that criminal in our family tomb? But Joseph accepts the shame, he bears the cost, and he takes his stand on the cross of Christ. He is willing to defile his name, to destroy his own reputation, to toss away his riches, that he might honour and serve this crucified king. I think it's quite impossible for us really to grasp the shame and degradation of the cross. It was the sign of the curse of God upon someone for the Jew to be hung on a tree. It was torturous. Can you imagine changing your whole philosophy of life to pin your hopes on someone who has just been crucified. It's almost impossible to imagine. I mean, we put diamonds on our crosses or we carry them around in processions. And he's following Jesus' words. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And if it was not for Joseph... Jesus' body would have simply been tossed away into a pit of burning, decaying corpses like the rest. But instead, the Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled 
Deuteronomy 21 on the screen. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree like a cross, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. He does exactly what the law says. And so he fulfills once again Isaiah 53, verse 9. They made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, although he'd done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And then there are the women who likewise honour and serve the crucified king. Verse 55, we're told that they follow Jesus to the tomb. The disciples have long since given up on that. Verse 56, they intend to anoint his body with spices in this one final act of love. And we see here that the real disciples of Jesus become obvious, not not during the the wonderful times where the teaching and the miracles are there and it's, it's calm and sunny and happy. It's when everyone deserts and you're alone. Then you see who the true disciples are. And so Luke holds them up as examples for us, asking us, how will you respond to the crucified king? Have you understood his death? That he faced the wrath of God for you, that you might receive the welcome of God? Have you responded to the cross? Are you mourning at your sin, throwing yourself at God's mercy, praising Him for His grace and love, taking your stand on His death, daring to serve Him, no matter what the cost? If we have truly grasped the cross of Christ, all our foolish pride must be dispensed with. We must admit we are not good people and we never will be. And the solution to our sin is not puffing up our self-esteem or foolishly thinking that we can better ourselves or achieve something and then we'll be someone. No, our only hope is to cast ourselves on the mercy of God to go to the cross. There at the cross, we find the gates of heaven open. There at the cross, we find real joy because our sin is forgiven. There at the cross, we find our real value because God loved us and gave his one and only son. There at the cross, we discover that all that really matters is not our achievements or our reputation or our riches or anything else we have in this world. But serving the crucified king, it just turns our world upside down. Have you understood the cross? Have you responded to the cross? Are you serving the king on the cross? 
all our pride must be banished. All glory and praise must go to him. All thoughts of living for ourselves must be banished. All our lives must be for him. All our despair at our sin must be banished, and we must also banish any thought of looking down on the sins of others. The cross humbles our pride. One uh, hymn writer puts it so beautifully. I've got the words on the screen. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most. I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Will you put aside your pride and glorify the crucified King with all of your life, no matter the shame, no matter the cost? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that Jesus hung there on that cross in our place, that he died, that the gates of heaven may be open wide. We thank you for the forgiveness that you've given us. Father, we do pray that you would humble our pride, that you would make us servants of the crucified King, willing to turn our backs on this world, that we might give him the glory that is his due. Give us courage, we pray, to bring this message to others this Easter. May many more come to put their trust in Jesus as their crucified King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.